The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at John, um, and we looked at verses or chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. We, we covered more verses than this, but these are kind of where we ended. And what we have here is Yeshua is promising His listeners that they would have the power to work miracles, just as He did, and even greater miracles than He did. And Yeshua also promised to answer their prayers. Whatever they asked for, in His name He said He would do it. Now these verses can be troubling if you don't understand them. See, if you read these promises as being to you, you could almost, they could almost cause you to doubt your salvation because it says, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And you could say, well, I believe in Him, but I'm not doing those works. It's, maybe there's something wrong with my faith. Or maybe these verses could cause you to question the trustworthiness, the truthfulness of the Bible. Because you say, well, it says this stuff's going to happen, but I don't see it in my life. Now, last week I told you that my position on these verses is that these verses are not written to us. Yeshua is not talking to us in these verses. These are very specific promises to those disciples in that upper room. Things that they were going to do. Now, this morning I want to show you how the Lord fulfilled these promises that He gave to His disciples in that upper room, but before we do that, I want to look a little bit at the topic of hermeneutics. In the Q&A session after the message last week, David Carraway said, it isn't always easy to determine what is for us and what is not. Because I said the Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us. But not everything in there is for us, so you've got to make that distinction, and that isn't always easy to do. You've got to pay attention. So how do we tell what's for us and what's not? Well, Shea Michael Hoodman, who is the founder, president, and CEO of Got Questions Ministries, writes this, Much misunderstanding about the Christian life occurs because we either assign commands and exhortations we should be following as era-specific commands that only apply to the original audience, or we take the commands and exhortations that are specific to a particular audience, and we make them timeless truths. And I think that's where we usually fail. We take things and we say, oh yeah, I'm going to claim this for myself. He says, how do we go about discerning the difference? And that's the real question, right? He says, the first thing to note is that the canon of Scripture was closed by the end of the first century A.D. This means that while all the Bible is truth, we can apply to our lives, most, if not all the Bible, was not originally written to us. Now, i got a little bit of problem with what he says there. He says, most, if not all, the Bible was not originally written. Listen, none of the Bible is written to you. None of it. Because it was written 2,000 years ago. The Bible was closed. The canon was done being written by AD 70. None of you were alive then, so I don't know how any of it could be written to you. All right? So we have to figure out how it applies to us, but it's not written to us. So it's not most, it's all. All right, The Bible's done, now we've got to figure out what he was saying to those people. Houdman goes on, the authors had in mind the hearers of that day. Boy, that is simple. But man, most people miss that. They're writing to real people. That should cause us to be very careful when interpreting the Bible for today's Christians. It seems that much of contemporary evangelical preaching is so concerned with the practical application of Scripture that we treat the Bible as a lake to which fish to fish application for today's Christians. All of this is done at the expense of proper exegesis and interpretation. Now I think you know exegesis is drawing out of Scripture what's in there. But too often what happens today is what we call eisegesis, where you read into the Bible things that aren't there. Houdman goes on, 
The top three rules of hermeneutics are context, context, context. Before we can tell 21st century Christians how the Bible applies to them, we must first come to the best possible understanding of what the Bible meant to its original audience. Now, that makes sense. Now, the top three rules here he gives may be an oversimplification of hermeneutics. All right, context is very important, all right? And the purpose of hermeneutics, hermeneutics is simply the science of biblical interpretation. And the purpose of it is to establish guidelines and rules for interpreting the Bible. Any written document is subject to interpretation. And so you have to develop rules to safeguard us from misinterpretation. Yahweh has spoken, and what He has said is recorded in Scripture. And the basic need of hermeneutics is to ascertain what He meant by what He said. Edward White says, There is no folly, no God-dishonoring theology, no iniquity for which chapter and verse may not be cited by an enslaved intelligence. That makes sense, doesn't it? Anybody who believes anything has a verse that they use for it. Right? The verse may be way out of context, but they use a verse. Everybody uses the Scripture to back what they believe. Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice, Act 3, Scene 2, said this, In religion, what air but some sober brow will bless it and approve it with a text? Hiding the grossness with a fair ointment. We use the Scripture to try to back up whatever we believe. And I've seen some crazy ideas that people put Scripture on to try to back it up. All right, so you get the point, right? We we need to use care when interpreting the Bible. We need to follow the rules that are laid out in hermeneutics. Now, but the problem is most people have never even heard of hermeneutics. The primary rule of hermeneutics is called what? Okay, the analogy of faith, which means Scripture interprets Scripture. No part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as it you know, contradicts another part of Scripture. Because God wrote this book. There's no contradictions in there. So if you have problems in some area, you look in another because Scripture helps you understand Scripture. Another principle of hermeneutics is called the grammatico-historical method. We need to pay attention to the grammatical construction that determines whether words are to be taken as questions or commands. For example, in Acts 1.8, it says, you shall be my witnesses. Is that a future prediction or is it a command? Well, in the English, it's not really clear, but in the Greek, it is. It is a command. We are to be his witnesses. The historical analysis involves seeking to understand the setting and the situation that the books of the Bible were written in. This includes the date of the writing, the authorship, the destination. These are important for a clear understanding of the text. Too often, we come from an egocentric perspective that assumes that whatever the Bible says, it says to us in our generation. Yet that hermeneutic ignores the historical context. When interpreting Scripture, we must always be aware that every verse, every line, every statement has just one interpretation. There's many applications, but one interpretation. Part of the historical analysis is the principle of original relevance. What did the original readers understand that text to mean? The Bible was written to real people in real places, facing real circumstances. You know, often you'll hear a Christian say, you know what this verse means to me? You know my response? Who cares? Who cares what it means to you? What did it mean to the original audience that it was written to? That's all that matters. Because people read a verse, they go, oh, this, to me this means this. That's got nothing to do with that. That's not what it's saying at all. It's just your emotional attachment to some verse that sounds good to you. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What does it mean? What did it mean to the original audience? That's what's important. And once you figure out the meaning, then you can see if there's an application to yourself. 
But whenever we force the Bible to say something on specific items of our life, we're in danger of divination. The will of God is determined from the Bible only in terms of what it says in its first grammatical sense or what can be derived from in terms of spiritual principles. God does not double talk when He speaks in Scripture. He doesn't have a historical common sense meaning plus some special meaning for you. If we come up with an application that would be foreign to the original audience, there's a real strong possibility we're way off base, okay? If you ignore audience relevance and view Scripture as written to you, you come up with all kinds of interpretations. And I want to just take a few verses now and show you some verses that are usually yanked out of context and misinterpreted. You know, um, One of my favorites is Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. This has got to be the number one high school graduation verse. How many times have you been to a Christian graduation and heard this verse? God has plans for you for good, you know, and you hear people quoting this verse. That's a comforting verse, isn't it? Well, maybe if it was a fortune cookie. Did you know what I mean when I say that? If it's a fortune cookie, fortune cookie has no context. It's just an isolated thing that's supposed to minister to you, supposed to you know, be for you. Well, this verse, you, know, you can't just rip it out of the book of Jeremiah. It's in a chapter. It's in a book. It's written for a specific purpose. And we have to understand those things. And here's the funny part about this verse. All you have to do is read the verse in front of it. You know, I mean, how hard is that? You know, read the verse in front of it and see if it helps at all. You know it's my fortune cookie there? See what it's got on it? Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> Let's back up to 10. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Okay, now we've got to figure out who's the you. I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. Now this is written in the 6th century B.C., when Jerusalem is being destroyed by the Babylonians. The, the Jews are being taken into captivity to Babylon. And Yahweh is assuring the exiles of Judah His long-term plan for them is good. He's telling them He hasn't abandoned them. He has plans for welfare and not for evil to give them, the exiles of Judah, a future and a hope. These promises were to take place when the 70 years were complete. Look at when 70 years are completed in Babylon. In other words, the Jews are going into Babylonian captivity. They're going to be in that captivity for 70 years. When the 70 years are done, God is going to bring them out. And that's where we get, you know, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, you exiles in Babylon. It's got nothing to do with a homeschool graduation or any other kind of Christian graduation. You say, well, it's a nice verse, and God might, God might have something, but that's not what the verse means. It, it no way has anything to do with that. And listen, I once read, I think it was in the book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation by Bernard Ram, but I'm not sure. But he said, if we take Scripture out of the context for which it was originally intended, it no longer remains the Word of God. Because that's not what God said. It's not what He had in mind. Because you just pulled it right out of where it belonged. And this has always driven me to, you know, like He said, context, context, context is king. You've got to find out what's going on here. Now this verse is easy to understand. You know, if you just, like I said, just go up one verse. You can read two verses, people. You know, it's not that hard. But how many times will you hear this? I laughed every year. Homeschool graduation. I'm sitting there. And, oh, I hear you got it. <laughs> You know, Sharon, you were there. You heard it many times, right? All right, here's another verse that's maybe not so easy, but just as out of sync, all right? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Now, let me ask you something. Is it a disgrace for a Christian man to have long hair? That's what that sounds like it's saying, right? Like, 
what is this? Have, why all this stuff about hair? And where is it? What is it about nature that indicates a man with long hair dishonors himself, while a woman with long hair is honored? Listen, we don't know anywhere that nature teaches such a thing. So people read this and they scratch their heads. You know the only way you're going to understand this? You've got to get into the minds of the first century Greeks. And when you get in their minds, then you'll have a clue to understand what's going on. Otherwise, you'll never get this, okay? Because if you look at all the Greek writers, the medical writers, they had this crazy idea that hair was part of the reproductive system, okay? They believed that hair was hollow, and hair would suck semen into it. And so a woman had long hair, it would pull the semen up and so she could reproduce. But see, if a man had long hair, it pulled the semen up into his head, so therefore he couldn't reproduce. And so this guy with long hair is dishonoring his purpose in life, which is to reproduce. So it had to do with a faulty Greek idea, okay? And so when you understand that, I mean, it's interesting. You read some of the writers, the Greek writers, the medical writers on this, and they are, it just, it will blow you away, some of the things. Matter of fact, if you're interested, there's a message we did on this online, and I quote a lot of the Greek writers, and it gets, you know, yeah. My wife was hiding under the chair, that message. <laughs> It gets a little explicit, but it it's, it's, uh, you know, just gives you an idea, all right? So the man couldn't reproduce, and that was what the disgrace was. Note what Paul wrote to the Philippians, 2.19. I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So Paul hopes to send Timothy soon, right? This is the Greek word, tehaios which is an adverb that comes from tehos. And so you've got to ask, well, how soon is soon? What's he mean by soon? What do you mean by soon? You know, does soon mean the same thing to them it meant to us? Yeah, I think it pretty much does. Look at the, what he says in verse 23. He says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul's in prison. This is called one of the prison epistles. He's writing from prison. He's waiting for his trial. So he says, as soon as I find out what, if they're going to execute me, what they're going to do with me, I'll send Timothy to you, Philippians, so he can tell you what's going on with me. All right? I, want you, I know you're concerned about me, so I'm going to send him so you'll know. He'll tell you the results of my trial. Now, the Bible says that Paul's going to send Timothy soon. So, are you excited about Timothy's arrival? No? Anybody waiting for Timothy to show up? Why? See, this one's kind of easy, right? You say, well, soon. No, we're not really waiting for Timothy because Timothy lived 2,000 years ago. So Timothy coming soon, that's all over. All right? They understand that. They understand that soon meant soon to the Philippians in the first century. Well, let me ask you this then. When it comes to the return of Christ... Why does soon not mean soon anymore? I mean, it's still first century context. Let's look at the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the book of Revelation is written to tell the churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches, the things that are soon going to take place. Soon here, tehos. Same root as we saw in Philippians 2.19 with Timothy. And the, the interesting thing about Revelation, it's bracketed by these. Look at 22.6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. So the book of Revelation, beginning to end, bracketed by these soon. The whole book's going to take place soon. The book is about the second coming. It's about the judgment on Jerusalem. It's about the resurrection. It's about the new heaven and new earth. But it's all bracketed by soon. Now Christians expected Timothy to show up in Philippi in the first century. But they don't believe that Christ would come in the first century. All using the same word soon, soon, soon 
but meaning totally different things. See, one soon means a couple weeks, a couple months maybe. The other soon means 2,000 years. What kind of hermeneutic is that? How can you do that? How can you take soon and make it 2,000 years? Again, this is, you know, audience relevance or original relevance. What did they understand? That's crazy hermeneutics to say, you know, we're going to push this off thousands of years, but to Timothy, it meant really quick. All right. So with that as kind of a little introduction, we, you know, we got to understand that there's science to interpreting Scripture. We can't just pull things out. We've got to know language. We've got to know culture. We've got to know history. Yeah, it's work. I understand that. Okay? Now, the verses we're looking at in John 14... 13 and 14, about the promises of prayer. These aren't the only promises for prayer. For example, look at Matthew 21, 22. And whatever you ask in, my, in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Okay? So, whatever you ask, you get. Uh, Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, these verses are spoken to the first century disciples, just like the ones in John, they're not promising us that we can get whatever we ask for and we'll receive it. You know, the proponents of the health, wealth, gospel, they love these verses. Because they just say, you know, you can get whatever you want, just ask for it. And if you didn't get it, guess what? You didn't ask in faith. You didn't have enough faith or you would have got it, okay? You would have got whatever you asked for. Well, let's look at these verses in context. Again, context is, is king. Look at Matthew 21, 20-22. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? The Lord cursed the fig tree and it just shriveled up. And Yeshua answered them, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, it seems as if in response to Peter's comment, Yeshua is giving a formula for moving mountains and cursing fig trees. Any of you ever moved a mountain? But it says you can, right? If you say to this mountain, it'll happen if you just believe. So what's the problem? We just don't have faith? Well, Plas, in his classic sacred diary, records his attempt at trying to make a paperclip move as a result of reading a book which spoke about how Christians should be able to move mountains by faith. So he read this and he goes, oh, Christians are supposed to be able to move mountains. So let me see if I can move a paperclip. He says if they're really tuned into God. Very inspiring. He says, wait until there was no one around. That was a good move. Okay. Then I practiced with a paperclip. That's smart. I mean, if you're going to move mountains, start small, right? Work your way up to a mountain, all right? I practiced with a paperclip. I put it on my desk and I stared at it. Willing it to move. Nothing. Tried commanding it in a loud voice. In paralleling Matthew 21.21 and 17.20, Plass comments, If you only need faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain, what hope is there for me when I can't even get a paperclip to do what it's told? You see what happens when you just handle the Bible like it's some crazy thing that, you know, I mean... He reads these verses. This is a promise to move mountains. So he's trying to do it. He's just kind of believing God for it, you know? Well, look what it says. Even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. What's Yeshua saying? Is he saying if we have enough faith, we can go into the earth moving business? What is the point of moving mountains, anyway? Well, notice that Yeshua says, He doesn't say, whoever says to a mountain. He says, whoever says to this mountain. It's my opinion Yeshua is speaking specifically about the Temple Mount. I think He's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple, the Old Covenant system that was associated with the mountain and being cast into the sea as a symbol of judgment. See, that Temple system with its priests and Pharisees was a huge obstacle to faith in God. Yeshua is telling the disciples to trust God. He's going to remove the mountain. He's going to remove corrupt Judaism for them. Again, this is specifically to the disciples in the first century who are going to be part of that transition period bringing in the kingdom of God. I mean, 
Believers, why would we care about moving mountains around? Unless you want to just show off, you know? Watch this. But I mean, can you imagine this man sitting there on his desk with a paperclip figure, and I got to get this to do it? I mean, the Bible says that. See, that's what happens when you don't understand how to interpret Scripture. You come up with some really crazy things. How about this verse? Philippians 4 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This verse was spoken to the first century Philippian believers. Does it apply to us? Got one brave soul. Does this verse apply to us? Yes. Because, see, this verse is directed to the church at Philippi. Now, we weren't there, but it's directed to the church, and we're part of the church, and there's nothing time-specific here. There's nothing specific about Philippi here. He's just saying, listen, believers, don't be anxious, but in everything, take it to God in prayer. And he says, with thanksgiving. This is meta in the accusative, and it means after thanksgiving. Hey, try praying that way. Start with thanksgiving, and then list your requests. You'll find out you probably don't have so many. But yeah, this is a timeless truth. And see, that's the thing, people. There's a lot of verses like this. We just have to learn to you know, put a little homework in and say, well, who's he talking to? What's the condition? What's, this, what's going on there? None of us are to be anxious. We're to spend time in prayer. All right, here's our verses. Now, I said last week that I could not find anybody to agree with my, and I gave you a little warning, because I couldn't find anybody to agree with my view on these verses. Well, that was last week. This past week, I found three men, three published authors, to agree with me. Now, I say published authors, and I know some of them. So, one of them, Alan Bondar, who's a pastor at church in Fort Myers, Florida. I sent Alan this text. John 14.11, or 14.14, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I said, hey, brother, is this verse true in your life? It's certainly not true in mine. Now, he didn't answer me to two days later. Notice I sent it on a Friday. I got the answer Sunday afternoon. And he apologized. He said, look, I was in a meeting when I got your text and I forgot about it afterwards. But he, here's this response he sent to me. Not mine either. Jesus was talking to the apostles in that context. And I wrote him back. I said, you said nine words what took me an hour to say. <laughs> but that's, that's as simple as it gets, people, right there. Okay? He's not talking to us. All right? He's not talking to us. Then last Thursday, I heard from Dan Harden, who wrote me that, for what it's worth, I think your interpretation of John 14, 11 through 14 was spot on. I think the only reasonable way to interpret this is support for his disciples with him in the room that night. I agree with Dan. You know, he agreed with me. That's, that's what it's all about. I found someone else who agrees with me, kind of. I quoted him earlier. Michael Hoodman writes this. Another common example of interpreting, interpreting with disregard to context is John 14, 13 to 14. Reading these verses out of context would seem to indicate that if we ask God anything unqualified, we receive it as long as we just use a normal a formula in Jesus' name. Applying the rules of proper hermeneutics to this passage, we see Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room on the night of his eventual betrayal. The immediate audience is the disciples. This is essentially a promise to his disciples that God will provide the necessary resources for them to complete their tasks. Amen. It's a passage of comfort because Jesus would soon be leaving them. Okay, it's essentially a promise to those disciples. He gets that, right? I agree with him there, but then he goes on to say, is there application for 21st century Christians? Of course. Now look, look at his application. If we pray in Jesus' name, we pray according to God's will. So he attributes somehow praying in Jesus' name, praying according to God's will. God will give us what we need to accomplish His will in and through us. So basically he's saying, as long as you pray in His name, you're going to get what you want. So obviously it does apply to us. You know, We can get what they got. But I'm saying practically I'd like to know how this works in his life. All right? He says, furthermore, the response we get will always glorify God. Far from a carte blanche way of getting what we want, this passage teaches us that we must always submit to God's will in prayer and that God will always provide what we need to accomplish His will. I don't know how this passage teaches that we have to submit to the will of God. I don't see that in the passage at all. 
So I disagree, and I don't think there's an application of these promises to us. They were specific for the disciples for a specific time to carry out a specific mission. Now what I want to do is go back and look at these promises and then look at their fulfillment. Because I want you to see, God only promised, He did this. All right. First promise, 14.12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do because I'm going to the Father. All right. That's the promise. You're going to do greater works than the Lord did. Now, I said last time, works here is specific to miracles, okay? To the gospel. Specifically, that's what he's talking about. Yeshua's miracles were signs that signified his identity. And these same works are to be used by God to mark out his apostles. Look at Acts 2 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul. See you guys, thanks for coming. Have a good flight. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay, so here's the wonders. Here are the signs. They're happening. Just like he said would. Now, notice the word awe here. This word is reserved for special times in Scripture. It's reserved for those times when people's minds are struck with an awe that is based on something divine that they can't explain. So the apostles are doing these works, and the people are like just in awe. This is amazing. This is the same thing Christ did. This is what Yeshua promised them. Look at Acts 3, 6-8. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. You know what the context here is? They're at the temple. There's a guy begging for money. Hey, can you give me some money? And Peter said, I don't have silver and gold, but in the name of Yeshua the Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He heals the lame man just like Christ healed the lame man. See, that stuff, and people, here's what you got to understand. This stuff is not happening today, okay? These miracles were to confirm the truth of the new covenant. So Peter heals a lame man, and then next thing Peter does, He kills a liar. Right? We go to chapter 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Ananias comes into church lying. Barnabas gave some money, so Ananias says, look at they're praising Barnabas for that gift he gave the church. Let's sell our land. Let's give it. say we're giving it all to the church, but let's not really give it all. Let's hold back some. And let's say we're giving it all. So they do that. And he walks in, and boom, he falls down dead. Now, I said that Peter killed him, and Peter was probably just as surprised this happened as the rest of the church members, but Peter confronted him in his sin, and God killed him. Half the congregation is probably thinking, wow, Peter, you killed that poor guy. But look at what it says. Fear came upon all who heard it. Can you imagine? Don't go in that church and lie. Okay? That's not a good thing to do. The apostles had this supernatural ability through the gifts. Look at 5.12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Just as the Lord promised in that upper room, they were doing greater works than Yeshua did. Now watch this one. Acts 5.15 and 16. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They just lay everybody sick out in the street, and if Peter walks by the shadow of Peter, then he's healing these people. And Dr. Luke, who wrote this book, he says everybody was healed. In other words, there were no failures. There was no excuses by Peter saying, well, they didn't have enough faith. That's why they didn't get healed. No, his shadow's healing them. It's clear evidence the disciples are doing the greater works that Yeshua had promised them. Now, here's a question that, that seems to come up. And are, are miracles the norm in Christianity? Miracles, are they the norm? No, they are not the norm. How many miracles have you seen? Now, uh, granted, the new birth is a miracle. 
Okay, and that is the norm in Christianity. That's a miracle. But I'm talking about you know, these different signs and wonders. If, you're, if you look at the Bible, you find out that miracles are grouped around three periods of time. They're not all through in the Bible. All right? You see miracles with Moses and Joshua. You see them with Elijah and Elisha, and then Christ and the apostles. There are gaps of hundreds of years between this period where there's no miracles happening at all. And here's the deal. The introduction of new revelation brought the need of miracles to authenticate the message and the messengers. See, miracles were God's testimony that those bringing the new revelation were His representatives. I mean, Moses introduced the Old Covenant, the law, to the newly formed nation of Israel. And miracles were given to introduce this heir and to codify these new revelations. I mean, you know, Moses said he was from God and they saw some pretty incredible stuff, all right? Because God was saying, I'm behind this. Elijah and Elisha were God's specific prophets for a day of decadence in Israel's history. The worship of Baal had reached its peak. And Elijah and Elisha stood for the revival of the prophetic heir in an age of critical spiritual decline. And miracles such as happened at Mount Carmel were given by God to draw Israel back to the institution of prophecy. And then we have Christ and the apostles. In Christ, God became a man. Obvious proof was needed to substantiate that. So Christ did some pretty amazing miracles. And when Nicodemus you know, met with them, he says, we know that you've come from God because nobody can do the things you do unless God is with them. I mean, you're doing some awesome stuff. God had to be involved in that. So the total New Testament hangs on Christ and the apostles. Thus, in the life of Christ and the apostles, miracles heralded the new revelation. Clearly demonstrated it. Look at Acts 6, 7, and 8. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. I mean, the Lord was all done after three years, three and a half years, He had about 120 disciples up there, and now they're saying they're multiplying by the numbers. And watch this. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the priests are trusting the Lord. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So up to this point, the focus on the book of Acts has been upon the twelve, specifically Peter and John, but now there's this change. Stephen now becomes the main subject of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And Stephen is the church's first martyr. Before the death of Stephen, you know, the opposition against Christianity was there were threats, there was verbal abuse, there was physical beatings. But now they, in pure rage, just grab Stephen and put him to death. They stone him. So he's the first martyr of the church. And the mention of Stephen's ability to perform signs and wonders is pretty significant because he's the first one outside of the apostles that we see doing this. God is showing. He is using this man and his message. Now the biblical evidence is that the gift of performing miracles was limited to those that first century group of saints that were moving the church from infancy to maturity during that transition period. They were for the purpose of confirming something that was coming to place for the first time. The new covenant was being brought into place. And so the miracles backed that up. They didn't continue on. Matter of fact, even at the end you know, of the transition period, you see the miracles fading away. You know, Paul left Tromophius at Miletum sick. Paul could heal people. and he, Well, that was Cruel, wasn't it? Why would you leave him sick? He tells Timothy, hey, instead of going see the faith healer, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Okay? Use a little holistic medicine there, Timothy. Because they, the gifts were beginning to fade out. Now, Paul wasn't there when the Lord made this promise to the disciples, but his apostleship was also validated by miracles in Acts 19.11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Because he was an apostle also. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. There's a way to get rid of evil spirits. You rub your napkin on Paul's skin and you take it and the spirits 
And this is where the faith healers today get, you know, your anointed prayer hanky. You know, you send us $100, we will send you an anointed prayer hanky that we prayed over, and you just rub it on you wherever your illness is, and boom, you'll be healed. And there's people foolish enough to send them money. Believe me, there's people, I mean, these guys got multiple jets, okay? They're not, they don't have a, they're not a one jet family, okay? They got multiple jets because they got a lot of people sending them money to keep this crazy thing going, all right? Handkerchiefs, wow, that's crazy. (laughs) But like I said, this is what, you know, this is what Shakespeare said here. They're going to take a verse and, you know, make it, you know, well, yeah, here's a verse to back it up. See, handkerchiefs, aprons, you know, they touch Paul, and so we're praying over these, and you're going to be, no, you're not Paul, okay? You're not the Apostle Paul, and you don't have that ability. It was in the late 1970s, some of you can remember back then, John Wimber and the Vineyard Churches, remember them? Okay? That they spawned, they were claiming that miracles should be the ordinary experience in the church. Here's what Wimber said. Jesus said that his followers would do greater works than he himself did. And he quotes our verse. So he's using our verse to say, we should be doing what they were doing. Wimber asserted that the main reason we don't see such works of power in our skeptical Western mindset, we just don't believe. He said, if we're not doing miracles along with our preaching, we're not preaching the gospel as we should. Wow. Wow. You got to have miracles. He is claiming somebody else's promises, and they don't work, and they didn't work. He, you know, believed that miracles should be for today, but they didn't see them. You know, now again, they did see low back pain healed and sinus headaches—the things you can't see too well. You know, but they didn't see any real healings. All right, Acts twenty verse nine. I love this verse. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting in a window, sank into a deep sleep, and Paul talked still longer. Paul just went on, and that guy didn't know when to quit. You know, he's just a long-winded preacher. You can't stand those kind of preachers, right? They just go on and on. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So this guy, Paul's going on so long, he just falls asleep, falls out of the window, and he's dead. Well, the following verses tell that Paul went and raised the dead. And, you know, I had someone comment once about, you preach awful long, and I said, so did Paul. And they said, well, when you can raise the dead, you can preach that long too. So... (laughs) Haven't been able to do that yet, so, but I'm still preaching long anyway. All right. So the miracles that our Lord did were carried on by His apostles. And once the church matured, once the canon was put together, the Bible was written, the Old Covenant was terminated, Jerusalem was destroyed, they stopped. They weren't needed any longer. All right, let's look at the other promise in our text. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do that, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, we saw earlier that Paul healed a lame man. And because of that, a big stir arose. You know, people were coming to Christ because of that. People were saying, oh my word, this is amazing. And the authorities didn't like that. Okay? They got rid of Christ. They put Christ to death. They figured, we're done with this. Now the apostles are carrying on. They're doing the same thing, and they're like, when's this going to end? And so they called the apostles in and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Yeshua. All right, so they call them in. You guys stop it. We don't want to hear this preaching anymore. What happens next? It says, and when they released them, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So these threats coming from the highest civil authority, see, the the chief priests, The Sanhedrin were not only religious authorities, they were civil authorities. All right? They had the force of law. And so obedience to Christ from here on was going to cost them because they said, no, you guys are not going to do this. You got to stop preaching in that name. Well, they come back to their friends to tell them what the Sanhedrin said, and they're rejoicing. They were excited because they got to preach the resurrection of Christ to the very Sanhedrin that killed Christ. And they thought, that's pretty cool. We're preaching to the ones, you know. Who killed him? Verse 24 says, And when they heard it, this is they get back to the group, they tell the group what's going on with the Sanhedrin. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. They get back, they tell them the Sanhedrin say, We're not allowed to speak in the name of the Lord anymore. And their first response is prayer. 
Let's pray, guys. Let's pray. And I got to ask, is prayer your first response in a difficult situation? Or is it you try everything else and it doesn't work? Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot prayer. Let me try that one. And notice their prayer, though. Okay? You want to learn something about prayer, go read the biblical prayers. Okay? They're, not, they're a lot different from what you're going to hear at prayer meeting. All right? First of all, they don't cry out to God. God, help us. God, protect us from the Sanhedrin. They're a bunch of bullies, and they're going to hurt us if we keep preaching in your name. They began their prayer by affirming God as the sovereign creator of all things. You know, the church found comfort in the fact that the God to whom they prayed was the creator of heaven and earth. He was the sovereign God. He was the God who was in control of everything. They knew that if God created everything in earth and the sea and the heavens, that these elders and priests were His property. And He could do with them as He pleased. So they just cry out to God. They said, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. See, whoever is leading this prayer, he knows Psalm 2 by heart because he's quoting Psalm 2 right here. He didn't pull out his Bible because they didn't have Bibles. Okay, He's quoting Psalm 2 from memory. He affirms his belief that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words. And then he takes that psalm and he applies it to their situation. He says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, when they heard Psalm 2, they said to themselves, that's exactly what's happening here. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the others, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they set themselves against the Lord. They saw it happening right in the very city. It's not surprising. It's not unexpected. It's exactly what God said would happen. And they found encouragement in the fact that none of this was beyond God's control. Notice verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. What's that tell you about the early church? There were no Arminians in the early church. Okay? They realized whatever was taking place was taking place because of God's sovereign authority. Even the death of His Son. These evil men were only doing what God's hand and counsel had foreordained. So they pray, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with boldness while they stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. So, they pray for boldness. Parasia, which means free, fearless confidence. See, they understood that persecution would naturally incline men to back up, to soften the message, which was preached, because you know you don't want to be persecuted. So thus, their prayer was for boldness and confidence before God. Remember, these guys have a promise from Yeshua that He's going to answer their prayers. He promised them that, right? So what do they pray for? Boldness. I mean, I think I would have prayed, Lord, smite the Sanhedrin. Right? I mean, you promised to answer our prayers. Get them out of the way. Destroy them, pagans. But they didn't, and they didn't ask to be delivered from the persecution. They were more concerned with their mission than their comfort. They didn't pray, God, make sure nobody else threatens us. Make sure nobody hurts us. They understood that it was going to cost them, and they simply said, Lord, give us the boldness to keep going forward. Boy, that's a lot different than prayers we hear today. Just give us boldness. We want to keep on delivering the message. You know, they had just come off this miracle of Peter healing the lame man. And because of the miracle, they were given a platform to boldly proclaim the gospel, and thousands of people came to faith. And they're asking God, just continue this, Lord. Give us a platform of boldness to keep declaring this message. And their prayer was abundantly answered. We see from Acts chapter 5, we learn of amazing miracles that constantly occurred, reaching out beyond Jerusalem to those that were sick. They flocked in Jerusalem. 
to find healing. And verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So there's their answer to their prayer. They prayed, God, give us boldness, and God gave them boldness. He promised to answer their prayers. He did. I just think it's amazing what they prayed. Maybe that's why He promised to answer their prayers, because He knew these guys are not going wild. Okay, They're not asking for Lear jets and million-dollar homes. They're praying for the mission. That's their prayer. Give us boldness. And they got boldness, and they went out and continued to preach the Gospel. Okay, we're running out of time here, but if you continue on in Acts, you'll see that over and over they prayed for something, and they got it. (laughs) They prayed and they got it. Just like the Lord had promised them. All right. So these promises, greater works, answered prayer, He promised to His disciples in that upper room, disciples that were going to carry on in the transition period and move that church from infancy to maturity, These promises were not given to us. And understanding that will help you not to expect what isn't yours. What happens when you expect something you don't get? Disappointment. That's why if you have no expectations, you'll never be disappointed. (laughs) It'll keep you from being disappointed because you don't get what you think you deserve. Well, God said He'd answer my prayers. No, He didn't. He wasn't talking to you here. This is time specific, and he did just what he said he would do. To them, he answered their prayers. They went out. They prayed for things. They saw the answers. They did the works that he did. They did greater works because they saw people coming, flocking to the faith. Thousands flocking to the faith throughout Jerusalem as they continued to do the very miracles that Christ himself did. So great promises, people. And we're going to see as we work through the rest of this, you know, upper room discourse, we've got to discern who, okay, what's, what's specific to them, what can be applied to us. And what you're going to find is really interesting when we get to John 17 and the Lord's praying. He says, I pray not just for them, His disciples, but I pray for those who will believe on Me because of them. Guess who that is? That's us. So, you know, we see that, you know, we just got to use some caution here in discerning the Scriptures. And it's... Believe me, they're they're much more powerful when they're taken the way they're meant to be taken, okay? And not used as some kind of fortune cookie. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Father, I pray we've made it clear about these verses. I pray You'd just give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would truly desire to only understand what You are saying in Your Word. We don't come to the Scripture with an agenda. We don't come with preconceived ideas that we have to force upon Your Word. Let us let it speak. Let us abide by it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.